Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them to hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. Our guest for this episode is Ivan Dozier with the National Resources Conservation Service. Ivan has been with NRCS for over 35 years and is a state conservationist for Illinois. Ivan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, To start out, would you mind giving us a little bit about your background, where you're from, um, a little bit more about yourself, and then maybe get into your current role? Sure. I'm actually a a native of Illinois. Uh, I was uh, raised on a farm down in southeastern Illinois in uh, White County, Uh, but uh, I did go to school at uh, the University of Illinois, earned my bachelor's degree in agronomy, and then went back to school a little bit later at the University of Illinois of Springfield and got a master's degree in environmental planning. Uh, I have been with USDA, Natural Resources Conservation Service, for over 35 years. Um, started out in uh, the field and have moved around in several locations around the state. But uh, for the past, oh, a little bit over seven years, I have been the state conservationist uh, here in Illinois. Thanks, Ivan. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be the state conservationist and what sort of things you get involved in from day to day? As the state conservationist in Illinois, I oversee uh, USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service activities throughout the entire state. So Right now, we have about 250 uh, employees, and they are scattered out in uh, 93 different uh, field offices around the state. We're an agency that works mostly with uh, farmers and other private landowners to help them uh, conserve soil, uh, maintain water quality, wildlife habitat. So on any given day, we do that through um, having technical professionals that are out there that uh, have uh, specialties in agronomy, forestry, wildlife biology. But then we also have uh, financial assistance programs that offer incentives for the farmers then that once we've gone out and helped identify uh, what conservation practices uh, that a farmer is interested in, then we can also oftentimes uh, help uh, with uh, with the implementation of those practices by offering financial incentives. Great, Knight. I think we'd like to follow up on a few of those uh, programs a little bit later on. Are, are you then a federal employee or do you work for the state of Illinois? 
So I'm a federal employee. Uh, our headquarters is in Washington, D.C., so as you might expect, uh, I do have to make frequent trips out there. So we're, we're not only at my level involved in uh, policy, making sure that uh, our programs meet the needs of uh, the people in Illinois, but then also uh, are consistent with uh, what's uh, the directions that's coming out of Washington, D.C. So um, pretty, pretty challenging job, and at any given day, it could be uh, personnel issues. The most rewarding days, though, are the days uh, when uh, we can actually go out and, and actually help uh, a farmer resolve some of the resource issues. I think that's probably some of the most rewarding parts about the job. I've, I've been in every county of the state of Illinois, uh, met a lot of people north to south, east to west to see uh, the difference in agriculture in the state, and then on a national level. haven't been to all states, but uh, I've been to about three-quarters of them, and again, just uh, seeing the way the people uh, make a living off of the land and, and sometimes even uh, even the water uh, has just been wonderful. It's one of the best parts of the job to get out there and meet all of those people. But then I think the other exciting thing is sometimes um, the things that we do, we, we see immediate resolution to a problem. Maybe somebody's just got a gully in the field or broken axle on a tractor. They're just started looking at it. We go out there and make a recommendation to that person. They fix it right away. Or we could be involved in much larger watershed projects. Um, uh, for example, um, Lake Decatur, and, and uh, you know, it's on the Sangamon River, and it may take years uh, to do the conservation planning on that and see years uh, before uh, the you see fruition of, uh, of your efforts. And so long-term uh, effects, short-term effects, and knowing that you're not only helping those individual farmers, but you're helping society as well. Uh, again, maintaining uh, our our productive base, keeping the water clean, keeping the air clean, and making sure we have a good balance of wildlife. With our podcast, we try to maintain a broad audience outside of just the state of Illinois. So it sounds like a lot of what you do and the programs that you're involved in would have a, applicability in other places also. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So uh, the federal programs that we administer are available around the country. Obviously, uh, some of the practices may be different, but the, the programs work exactly the same way. So uh, it's, um, uh, again, we definitely want to make sure that we take uh, uh, these broad programs and make them as useful as possible to the people in our particular area. And as you noted, Illinois is uh, you know, it's a pretty diverse state even uh, in itself, but uh, we often collaborate across uh, these uh, state boundaries uh, with our neighboring states, again, to make sure that uh, what we're seeing is the same thing that they're seeing where they are and uh, sharing ideas and, and uh, sharing experiences of what uh, farmers in these other areas uh, are hearing about so we can help our folks uh, be be more on top of things. That sounds like a very gratifying job. Uh, this year has been a challenge for farmers, not only in Illinois, but across the nation. It's been a wet spring. We've had challenges throughout the summer, and now uh, 
the harvest is, is somewhat delayed. There's been a lot of prevent planting acres, uh, areas that didn't get planted to a crop this year, and a lot of those guys considered the use of a cover crop. How does your group, uh, so what kind of cover crops are, are you involved with, and, and how do you, um, how does your group communicate recommendations to farmers when it comes to implementing cover crops in their cropping systems? So when it comes to cover crops, um, just like any other conservation practice, it is um, USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service. We we are kind of the standard, and in fact, that's exactly what we have is standards and specifications for hundreds of different uh, conservation practices. So cover crops, one of those practices that's out there, it's a very broad term, uh, but we work very closely with the um, extension, not only here in Illinois, but in other states on a regional level, and we put together practice standards that include uh, the species of cover crop, uh, the, the timing uh, to plant that cover crop, the seeding rates for those cover crops, and looking at it just as a conservation practice. And then, of course, the thing that really came into play this year is when you marry uh, those issues of putting a conservation practice out there uh, of cover crops and how it might be impacted with other programs uh, such as you mentioned, prevent planting, and that's that term that goes along with uh, the all-important crop insurance. So making sure, and this may sound like uh, a pretty simple statement, but making sure that the conservation practice uh, doesn't uh, put you um, put you at odds with another federal program. And I say it may sound kind of simple, but it was only uh, in this past year when uh, USDA risk management was able to say that cover crops as a farming practice is something that's called, you know, a good farming practice and then allow uh, for some adjustments to be made. So, for example, many of the things that you might plant for a cover crop could also be used as an agricultural crop. So, for example, cereal rye or oats or even in some cases um, radishes and turnips, some of the brassicas, peas. Uh, maybe we're not raising them for crops, but uh, when you write the rules for some of the programs, you've got to make sure that uh, you don't put someone in a position that they're planting something that could be considered a commodity crop. So you have to pay attention to when uh, risk management says you need to terminate those crops before you could be allowed to harvest them. So gets a little bit complicated when you talk about a conservation practice and then you move it over into how is that, how could that be impacted against uh, other federal programs? We ran into that this year. Ivan, if we have some listeners who are not involved in farming, they may or may not understand uh, some of the topics that we discuss from time to time. For someone who is not intimately involved in farming and not really familiar with cover crops, can you just tell us in a nutshell what the practice of involving cover crops into a crop rotation, what does that bring to the table and what does that do for us? And and actually it sounds like a really simple question, but, but it's a little bit difficult because, again, just saying that term cover crop is very broad uh, because it can be anything from being used uh, crops for forage 
anything to extend the, the growing season, uh, or it could be plants that are planted to help protect the soil from erosion. It could be plants that are planted to um, increase organic matter in a farming system. It could be plants that are uh, sequestering nutrients, trying to tie up those nutrients so we don't see as many losses. It could be for weed suppression. It could even be for wildlife habitat. Mostly here in the Midwest, what we see with a cover crop is a plant that maybe is doing all kinds of those things and is out there normally during a period of time when our crop, uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, is not normally in the field and the cover crop is out there doing all of these good things as a as a soil conservation practice or as a conservation practice uh, while the crop is not growing. Interesting. I'm kind of curious, and maybe you don't have an answer for this, but do you have metrics year on year of cover crop adoption? Are people um, utilizing cover crops more on a year-to-year basis, or is it static from year-to-year typically? So I I would have to go off of anecdotal information. I I would say this, that I think cover crops are the hottest growing conservation practice that's out there. Uh, and I see this all around the country, not just in, in the Midwest. The, the metrics are a little harder coming, um, because there are so many, uh, different ways that it's being tracked. So we know, uh, from a conservation practice, if someone signed up in one of our conservation programs, such as the Environmental Quality Incentives Program or the Conservation Stewardship Program, we get a pretty good handle on how many acres are going in that way. But so many farmers are doing it um, um, on their own, and that's just how how hot it is. I'm I'm really looking forward um, to when we get it together and uh, get a good, accurate accounting. But from everything I've seen and heard, um, it's it's just the hottest going thing right now. It reminds me back in the uh, in the '70s when uh, uh, no-till was really start uh, starting to take off. Uh, I'm seeing the same kind of thing with with cover crops. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned kind of the anecdotal evidence because I even see I I'm based out of Central Illinois, Woodford County, and we have pretty high fertility soils, and there hasn't been a lot of adoption of cover crops yet there are some growers that are doing it but i'm starting to see in some areas where growers will come in and in a high erosion area of the field maybe just plant some strips in there just maybe not plant the whole entire field but they're starting to see the benefits from a conservation standpoint you know uh mentioning that for example so a lot of these um rich soils around central illinois they're they're very forgiving they have a lot of high natural organic matter already in them. They're very productive. Um, and, you know, why would you want to mess with that? But I have seen some people in uh, central Illinois as they start to, uh, to look at it. I saw a field just this spring, a good example, uh, that had cover crops in it, and you could walk around in that field as wet as it was, and uh, you would sink up to your ankles uh, the minute you got into the adjacent field that didn't have the cover crops. Again, it's anecdotal. Uh, this is some of the testing that's still come up, and, and as I mentioned before, Illinois is such a variable state, variable soils, and uh, it's one of those things that um, the the study and the research they're just constantly uh, catching up, and there hasn't been a whole lot 
there hasn't been a whole lot bad about us. There's a few people that have had some bad experiences, but what you mentioned, uh, people who haven't been familiar, they haven't talked to their neighbors, um, trying it out a little bit of time is something that I would uh, um, recommend definitely to someone uh, if they hadn't had a whole lot of experience with cover crops. Absolutely. We'll uh, switch gears here real quick. So I've got a few milkweed plants in my backyard, and I'm just starting to see the last flush of monarch monarch uh, butterflies floating around before they uh, migrate down south. I'm just a little curious. Are you guys involved with pollinator habitats at all? So absolutely. Uh, we've we've been involved with pollinator habitat for um, a long time as an agency. And uh, it's it's fascinating when you see something come up, uh, for example, the, the Monarch Initiative. And people have come up and asked me, why are the monarchs so important? And I, I think we've all heard, uh, you know, some of our pollinators, the bees and everything, the, uh, some of the fruit crops in particular, strawberries, uh, things like that, that, that rely so heavily on those pollinators. And they're like, are monarchs really that important as a pollinator? And it's a fascinating question uh, because here's really why the monarchs are, are so important. It's just like what you said, Preston. You've seen those monarchs. Everybody knows what a monarch butterfly looks like, and they are an excellent indicator species. So just like many other of the pollinators that are out there, they, they need a food source. Uh, they need water. They need habitat. You mentioned before they start their migration. Uh, so knowing, um, knowing what their life cycle is and making sure that there are plants around that they can utilize is an important part of understanding all pollinators. But if you've got good habitat out there for monarchs, odds are we're making some pretty good habitat out there for other pollinators. And, and again, milkweed, you mentioned, that's an easy one to tag with monarchs because their larvae, you know, feed exclusively off of milkweeds. Doesn't just have to be the common milkweed. Um, they they like the butterfly milkweed, the the swamp milkweed, the purple milkweeds. We have, actually have several native milkweeds, but that's an exclusive food source for those uh, for those larvae. Now, but the butterflies, they, they'll feed off of uh, just about anything out there. So if you've done a good job of making sure they have something for their entire life cycle, making sure that they have something for the entire season, plants that flower early, mid-season, late season, and help them get them on their way, then, it, then that's the kind of thing that we're looking for with the Monarch Initiative is we've got that wonderful indicator species out there that, that you can recognize, and then you start to have an understanding of of uh, their life cycle and why it's so important to have that habitat, ha habitat out there, and uh, you make it happen. And the fact that you're seeing more of them this year, I, I have too. Uh, again, haven't seen the counts, and I, I know you can have one bad season down in Mexico where they're overwintering and, and can uh, uh, have a devastating effect on the population. Uh, but, boy, when you can notice the difference on something that uh, that you've done here locally, I think that's a good feeling too. You, you alluded to the fact, or you directly stated, that, that monarchs are a good indicator species of kind of biodiversity and pollinator health in general. And there are many other pollinators that don't get the press of the monarchs, correct, that bring a lot of benefits for us in, in agriculture and outside of agriculture. Absolutely. And I would say that um, um, 
for a, a number of different species out there, not just pollinators, but uh, any kind of wildlife. I was talking about knowing the life cycle and, and uh, knowing what um, the animal needs to be able to survive. You could you could put that same kind of concept uh, uh, to just about any migrating bird uh, or even some that overwinter, uh, like Preston was talking about, making sure they had food to keep them on their migration. But we have a number of wildlife species that, that overwinter. We have another a number of pollinators that also overwinter. You know, they go into a, a hibernation. And so understanding that part of the type of pollinator that you have um, and making sure that they uh, have habitat to keep them uh, safely through the winter, you know, whether it's burrowing in the ground or, or having an above ground nest, recognizing what those things are and making sure that they have all of those pieces that they can complete their life cycle. Great. Yeah. Uh, Ivan, are there any other programs or projects uh, such as soil erosion, anything that you have a passion for that you'd like to, to mention? So, uh, you know, we were born, we used to be the Soil Conservation Service. So our agency was born out of the Dust Bowl days. And so we started with soil erosion, um, mostly from a productivity standpoint, uh, making sure that we literally did not see our productivity base uh, erode. Um, soil erosion and water quality go uh, hand in hand. When we changed over to the Natural Resources Conservation Service, uh, in the mid-1990s, it was to, uh, uh, an understanding that uh, the, the connection of natural resources of soil, water, air, plants, and animals. So every one of our programs and our technical assistance is geared to that. But I would have to say our flagship program that we have, the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, it's, it's uh, our most versatile program which can help uh, farmers and other landowners address just about every one of their resource concerns that they have with soil, water, air, plants, and animals. Very versatile program. I mentioned uh, the practice standards. You, we, Our people can come out to your farm one-on-one -on -one and walk over the land, uh, give you an evaluation of what's there, and make recommendations that fit how you would like to to see the land used. And then, as I mentioned before, not only can you select then from those recommendations, but uh, there's a very good chance that we've got a, uh, an incentive program that can help offset some of the cost and some of the risk uh, of adopting a conservation practice. We talked about cover crops before. If you've never done it before, there's a risk. Farmers don't get a do-over, and if you kind of mess up on a conservation practice, um, it, it, it can be a substantial financial hit. So one of the things you can do, try something a little bit at a time, and the financial assistance that we have can help uh, take away some of that risk as well, some of the financial risk and the, and the personal risk. You've referenced a couple of programs there, and obviously there's there's all sorts of programs out there. What is the best way for growers to access this information? Should they contact their NRCS office directly? Is there a website? Is there a better way? Uh, what would you recommend? So we, we do have a, a website that you can go in uh, nationally, and, and, in fact, you can just go to farmers.gov, and that will take you into the website that also – gives you an opportunity to look at, for example, the Conservation Reserve Program 
that NRCS does the technical assistance side of that program, but it's administered by the Farm Service Agency. But through that portal, then you can also see uh, how how to uh, how the environmental quality incentive program works, how the conservation stewardship program works, how our easement programs work. We we also have an easement program. But as I mentioned before, Illinois has 102 counties. We have offices that cover all of those counties, but 93 field offices. So not very far away from where you are. We have a USDA service center. Um, co-located with us is the local soil and water conservation district. So they often have some programs that are offered through the state as well. So. You can you can get in touch with us through the web. You can go to one of the local offices. We even have a another neat little thing called the Conservation Client Gateway. You sign up for that. You can get automatic notices. You can sign up for conservation uh, programs. Never never have to leave your house. And then uh, if you want us to come out, like I said, we can you can make an appointment through there. Our local field office will come out to your farm. Excellent. So I mentioned before, it's been a hard year across the country. Yields are probably going to be significantly down. But if we take this past year out, uh, yields have been increasing year on year for you know the last decade or so. So from your perspective, are you excited when you think about the future of agriculture from a sustainability perspective? Or to be more clear, I guess, is, is there any technology or any uh, sustainability effort uh, that excites you about the future of ag? You know, I think we always have to pay uh, attention. You talk about the, the yields increasing, and it's usually because we've learned to get more uh, out, out of the land, whether it's through uh, hybrids or to keep our soil more productive. And we're going to have to uh, because we continue to lose land. Uh, we, we lose land uh, around uh, the world through desertification. We're losing a lot just as the population continues to grow. And it's potentially a very vicious cycle. As the population grows, they need to eat more. Uh, as they grow, they spread out and use up land that we need to produce food. So the pressure is on us constantly. So just the fact that we're talking about sustainability, just the fact that we are making some headway, I think is pretty important. We have a, we have a long, we have a long way to go. Uh, but I think what I've seen in the last few years, as we continue to make strides, we continue to find out uh, how to make some of the soils that maybe had been degraded and make them even more productive. We continue to learn more about how do we uh, uh, produce off the land and still get along with our neighbors who might not understand uh, what some of the farming practices, you know, maybe kicking up a little too much dust or uh, occasionally we do see erosion. So how we can continue uh, to, to learn as people understand how important it is to, for us to continue to produce food, but also do it in a way that is indeed uh, mindful of the environment and minimizing those negative impacts. You've, you've uh, kind of referenced a couple of things, you, how your agency started out in the Dust Bowl, and um, we can see that agriculture has come a long way from a from a sustainability standpoint, obviously we have a lot farther to go also, but even if we think about some practices that we have that necessarily aren't in your purview, but 
um, things like uh, GMO BT traits protecting the crops, and, and we can really reduce the use of non-selective insecticides and things like that. I think we need to we need to look at the, the the broader picture and look at every option that's out there, whether that is is uh, technology with uh, with crop uh, and plant breeding, animal breeding, uh, e- equipment, tools, and as you said, we we learn more and more. We were talking about some of this productive land in the middle part of the state. Um, we didn't do a whole lot of that with soil erosion in the in the past, but now that we're seeing what's going on with nutrient losses and understanding how those nutrients are going off-site and causing problems for folks elsewhere, like down in the Gulf, uh, this is something now that we're paying attention to. We weren't before. Uh, when we talk about um, the soil's involvement in sequestering carbon, for example, um, all of those things that we learn more and more uh, how we affect, uh, affect our environment, I think we need to look at every single option uh, that's out there if we're going to truly be sustainable. Agree. Well, Ivan, we're coming up on 30 minutes here. Uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our podcast and taking time out of your schedule and your many trips to D.C. Uh, so thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yep, absolutely. One last thing to ask before we go off here. Uh, mm-hmm. For people to interact with you or contact you, do you have a, a contact information on Twitter, for example, or anything where people can find out more about what you do? So my my personal contact information, the agency is on Twitter, but uh, we don't do that. But they can get a hold of me through email. It's just uh, ivan.dozier at usda.gov. Great. Thank you. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.